Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 global giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with global giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time the number four coffee.org. That's Andrea at time the number four coffee.org. Just say, hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Thanks so much for pressing play on another episode of T4C. If you are interested in working for a mission-driven organization and you either have or getting a liberal arts degree as an undergrad, then my next guest, may be able to help you think through how you can turn your interest in making the world a better place into a fulfilling career working at nonprofit organizations. But before I introduce you to Courtney Eskew, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an overview of the new episodes we're going to be dropping that week with a sneak peek at the guests we're going to be featuring. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and sign up. The box is right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you're welcome to scroll down just a little bit on the homepage and see all of the episodes we've dropped to date, which are organized by career to make it super easy for you to locate the professionals in the careers that most interest you. Now, my Java lovers, it is that time. So please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today joining me around the virtual coffee table is Courtney Eskew, a senior manager for vetting and grants at Global Giving 
global giving helps nonprofits from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe and hundreds of places in between access the tools, training, and support they need to be more effective and make our world a better place. Courtney, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. Absolutely. I should have said welcome to Time for Tea because you're in the UK right now, right? Yes, I'm actually in London visiting my colleagues at Global Giving who happen to be based here in London at our Global Giving UK office. And so I'm guessing you've had a few cups of tea since you got there. I actually had my first drink of today was a proper British tea, which a colleague was surprised by because normally Americans decline a proper British tea in lieu of coffee. Really? I actually do like tea as well. This is called time for coffee, but whatever your caffeine choice is, I'm good, you know? (laughs) So Courtney, welcome to time for coffee. I know you're there getting acquainted with your global giving colleagues, probably on the vetting and grants team. Would you be kind enough to explain to our listeners what it means to say that you are the senior manager for vetting and grants at Global Giving. What does your team do and what do you do? Right. To be the senior manager really just means I lead an incredible group of smart, intelligent people who are working together to ensure that every nonprofit that has posted a project on Global Giving and is raising funds from donors in the US, donors in the UK, donors from around the world to really accelerate community-led change in their communities is in fact a legitimate charity in that project's country. That it's led by people who care about a particular theme in philanthropy and that the organization is accredited, has a track record of implementing programs, and is really in compliant with international guidelines for philanthropy. Mm, okay, that's very helpful. Can you give us an example of the kind of grants that you are vetting and managing? So there are two, two types of grants. If you're listening now and you decide to go to globalgiving.org after this podcast and interview, you're going to see several featured projects. You could also search for projects in India that focus on girls' education. If that's a particular thematic challenge in international development that motivates you. And the project itself is going to suggest that you make a donation yourself or your, a grant yourself as an individual to fund $10 that will provide and support books for a young girl for one month in her school. Then there's a separate part of Global Giving's work that isn't as visible on our website. And we work with philanthropic companies and institutions, for example, Ford Motor Company Fund, who might be based in the US or UK, but their employees live and work overseas in countries ranging from Mexico to Russia, to India, to China. And those companies and institutions want 
philanthropy from their company to reflect where employees live and work. And so those employees have an opportunity to refer charities that they volunteered for for some time for a kind of a major grant. And these grants could range anywhere from $5,000 in size that have really just one week of project implementation to a multi-million dollar grant that's constructing a particular agroforestry project in a really remote part of India, for example. And to facilitate that type of giving, global giving has a really specific grant cycle that does mirror a more traditional grant-making foundation where nonprofits both get vetted by global giving and then submit a specific project plan that we deem charitable. And we set specific terms and conditions for the money they'll be receiving. And after paying the funds to the nonprofit, they report back to Global Giving in a certain cadence over a specific period of time until the grant is closed out. So in addition to really verifying that those projects you see on our website are in fact legitimate charitable organizations, and we go through a pretty rigorous due diligence process to provide that trust to you as a donor, My team is also managing pretty large portfolios of grants, again, for corporate and philanthropic institutions. Great. Now, how do you do the vetting? Because Mm -hmm. as you said, and as I said in the introduction, Global Giving has projects that it's supporting, that it's facilitating through its online portal in countries all around the world. So how do you make sure that those projects are in fact legit. I can't understate this enough. It is a tough job because the team is constantly monitoring and learning more about country level regulations for nonprofit charities. You can imagine that the way a nonprofit gets registered in Nigeria is very different from a nonprofit in Nepal. And the expectations of charities for both of those look very different for charities in Brazil, as an example. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to determine in this global landscape that any one of those charities is equivalent to a US 501c3 or an organization that's deemed charitable by the United States here or an organization deemed charitable by UK governance regulators as well. And so Global Giving asks all of these nonprofits to submit a lot of documentation to us. So we're looking at things from their government certificate of registration. We are looking at their founding documents to see how they're governed. We look at past financial statements, program materials. We're also looking at their online presence to see what their community members say about them, how they talk about themselves, how they tell their stories. And all of that wraps up into a due diligence profile that goes through different levels of review internally. And then there's kind of the wonky stuff too, where we're looking at the people who run those charities and just making sure they're not on watch lists to make sure that they're not terrorists or money launderers, because there are certain rules that U.S. regulators put on charities that are making grants overseas to ensure that money doesn't end up in hands. And then you might think, well, okay, a nonprofit is giving global giving this documentation, but how do you then really know that they're real? Mm -hmm. 
every nonprofit that applies to global giving gets onboarded through something called the accelerator. And in a time-bound period, usually it's around 15 to 30 days, every new partner has to raise a certain amount of funds from a certain amount of donors. And it tends to be $5,000 from 40 different unique donors. And what that allows Global Giving to do is really rely on the organization itself to demonstrate a level of community support that emphasizes its legitimacy. So Global Giving isn't going to suggest you as a new donor to our platform giving to this organization if the organization itself hasn't been able to rally a community of supporters themselves. Once they're on the website, we actually have a pretty robust monitoring process for our partners. So they report every three months in kind of a simple narrative framework to anybody who's ever given to their project. And Global Giving tries to visit all of our partners at least once every two years. And so these kind of mechanisms allow for continuous vetting of our nonprofit partners, in addition to that really kind of rigorous and more nerdy or compliance-focused vetting that is required just to join. How many, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but roughly how many different projects are there on the Global Giving website at this time? The number of projects is changing and we tend to have anywhere between 3,500 projects and 5,000 projects on the website. But we also have around 5,000 nonprofits submitting applications to us each year. And so that's a really big scale of operations, both for vetting and then just ongoing monitoring of the work that we're doing and supporting in a truly global community. And those projects are in over 170 countries around the world. And how big is your team? My team is much smaller than that. We have six people on my team. And so we, as an organization, Global Giving, have been in business as a charity for over 15 years. And throughout those 15 years, have really learned to leverage tools and technology to help us scale and do, again, very rigorous vetting on these charitable organizations at a scale. Yeah. So can you take us into a typical day for you, Courtney? You're in London right now, but you're usually working in Washington, D.C. Could you give us a sense of what you do as the senior manager of vetting and grants, what your days are like? Right. So I still, as a manager of people, projects and the product behind our work still do some of the work. And looking back at this past year, I took a course called Becoming a Better Manager. And one of the biggest takeaways from that course was a manager's job is not to do the work. A manager's job is to make sure that the work gets done. That was a really helpful framing for me, but it's not realistic in my personal role because it's really important to be connected to the work itself to monitor different pieces. A typical day for me might be answering my team's questions around a piece of an organization's application that is not clear. So I can give you an example. To be considered charitable, your governing documents has to contain something called a dissolution clause that states when your organization dissolves, when it winds up, when it closes, that its assets 
will not go to members of the organization or to any particular individual, but that those assets would be transferred to a similar charity of a similar purpose. And that is a very uh, legal framework. And you can imagine we get governing documents that are in different languages that then the nonprofit translates using Google. And then we get this messy translation in. And it's either missing a dissolution clause or it's really not clear if it's going to members or not. So I do a lot of triaging and guiding on how to interpret information that we've received. Sometimes I might be doing the same, but for a particular grant. So let's say an organization has submitted a project proposal to buy a or purchase a piece of equipment. Let's say it's a tractor. And we're trying to figure out who's going to own this tractor at the end of the grant period. And what kind of implications does that have for their agreement with global giving? It can get really nerdy, Andrea. My days can. Where I'm just managing and making sure that our work is also progressing against any objectives that the organization Global Giving has set. And one of those, as I was talking about earlier, is scale. So part of Global Giving's mission is to accelerate community-led change. And we, as, as a nonprofit, believe that good ideas can come from anywhere at any time. It's reflective of one of our values, and that's always open. And in order to create as much inclusion as possible for any type of organization that's doing good work, there might be changes to our due diligence policies that are necessary. And so my day might be thinking through just internal policy changes and then figuring out the best way to communicate those to my management team for approval. And we're also constantly creating and testing new technology to accelerate the vetting process itself. To give you a different example, again, I work with incredibly smart people and we are testing just some machine learning technology to understand quickly what an organization's profile on the internet looks like. So is there anything reported publicly about an organization's involvement in a lawsuit? Any connection between that organization and fraud? any connection between the nonprofit and its community that has a serious concern about an issue as it relates to safeguarding or potentially misallocation of funds. And if we can use machine learning and automated tools to pull those headlines from this incredible wealth of information we have on the internet, that can help Global Giving make decisions faster about organizations. Thank you so much for that, Courtney. You know, I want to ask you about your time as an undergrad in a few minutes. But first, I think our listeners might be surprised to learn that you didn't study business as an undergrad. You didn't study finance or accounting or any of those more mathematically focused subjects, but rather were a double major in international studies, French language and literature with a minor in religious studies. So I got to ask you, Courtney, how the heck (laughs) did you break into the vetting and grant space? (laughs) I hope that your listeners can really internalize that nobody's life is pre-planned. And most people at different parts of your life are going to look back and realize that these pieces of your puzzle 
fit together in a way that you could have never planned for. And I always say to young people and those graduating from college that you just have to be open to opportunities. So how I ended up in this space... Yes, I studied a few different things in undergraduate school. And I spent a lot of my time in college actually overseas. So I did a study abroad program in France where I actually learned Arabic. It was part of my required courses. At the end of that program, I was selected for... At the time, and I hope this is still a program, the State Department wanted Americans to learn critical languages. And so I was accepted to learn Arabic at an intermediate level in Jordan. And I literally studied Arabic for eight hours a day for three months. And I've worked with nonprofit organizations for long periods of time in Rwanda, Cameroon, and Morocco, all during those four years. And so I knew that I really cared about working in a, in a global context. I loved learning languages because it allowed me to connect with people in communities different than my own. And what happened when I graduated is I graduated at the time of the last major economic recession. And as a young person, there was a mantra going around, think global, act local. And I went to college in Memphis, Tennessee, and I loved Memphis. And so I decided to stay after graduating. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I ended up working as a teacher at a startup charter school. So you started by saying that I didn't take any business classes well, I sure as heck didn't take any education classes either, but there, there I was in a learning environment. And that really influenced me because even in this conversation, looking back, I learned a lot about my own management style in the classroom. I knew that it wasn't meant for me to be a kindergarten teacher forever, which is what I was doing at the time. And so I took a job in Washington. I moved to Washington to work at an international nonprofit that as part of that job, I was managing a corporate partnership with a company based out of Memphis, ironically. And it was to fund a program called Points for Kids. So the idea was supporting through very, very small donations, a education program in the slums of Nairobi, Kenya. And it was weird how all of those little pieces you know, connected together. I was able to tell a story about working with schools, tell a story about my connection to Memphis. And I do think that those elements of my life helped me get really my foot in the door at an international nonprofit. And I was on the fundraising side. I was working with volunteers to come up with kind of creative ways just to raise money as an individual who felt really passionate about the work that I was doing at the time, which was trying to raise awareness about world hunger. And so after a little while, I decided that I wanted to try something other than fundraising, even though I did think I was successful at it at the time. And a position opened up at Global Giving and I applied and that was six years ago. So my life has taken a lot of different turns. And actually, you mentioned earlier that I'm based out of Washington, D.C. And three years ago, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And so I've been working in my role mostly remotely for 50% of my global giving career. Got it. So you are not, in fact, working in D.C. You're working in Atlanta. Yes, that's true. 
fantastic. You know, what I heard in that story, Courtney, and tell me if this resonates with you, it sounds like you in school studied what you were interested in. You got involved in different activities that you felt passionately about. And then you kind of learned on the job. You just had one step after another. And as you moved from one job to the next, the skills that you were honing were applicable in that next job. There was clearly still a learning curve, but you kept rising to the challenge. Absolutely. And I never knew what I wanted to be, right? I never knew what I was going to be, but you learn along the way who you don't want to be and what you don't want to do. And those lessons drive you to the next thing. I love that. That is such great insight, Courtney. The other bit of insight I would love to get from you is on being a young manager. One of the things that I try to do with all of my guests is to give them the opportunity to flag different topics or questions that they think I should ask them. And this is one of the ones you wanted me to ask. You said most people are surprised to learn that you are such a young manager. You only graduated from college in 2010. And your team today requires you to manage two people who are in fact older than you are. What have you learned about being a young manager that you think our young listeners could benefit from? So this isn't my first experience being a young manager, actually. When I was in school, I worked on a project for four years that I was a member of the founding team on. And one of my earliest lessons was really trying to manage the expectations of somebody who was not just more senior than me in age, but more senior than me in school. And I, for, for a college student, that's meaningful because you look at seniors in college or juniors in college when you're a freshman and they're paving the way and creating footsteps for you to follow in. But when I was managing somebody significantly older than me as a much younger person than I am now, I really waited until it was too late to flag to somebody else that I was struggling. And that was a really hard lesson. And at the end, the leader of the project said to me, you really should have come to me. I think about that a lot now, mostly because I fortunately have not had a similar experience in my time at Global Giving. The best management advice that I've ever received was shortly before stepping into my current role. And I was told that being a manager means that sometimes you have to make decisions that are in service of the organization. And sometimes you have to make decisions in service of your team. And sometimes you have to make decisions in service of yourself. And they're not always going to be in alignment. And when they conflict, that's the hardest challenge. And so thinking back in my college years, I wasn't making the right choice in service of the project itself or the team. I was trying to be strong. And now as a young manager, you have to realize that management isn't about seniority. It's about a responsibility to those on your team, making sure that they are heard and making sure that they are respected. And if you come to work every day, being thankful and sharing gratitude for 
the people who allow you to be in that position successfully is is what makes management fun for me. And to be honest, Andrea, I haven't had the best experiences being managed prior to my time at Global Giving. In fact, that's the primary reason I left my job prior. And one of the reasons why I left the education world after a year, because there is just some basic respect that often gets missed or misconstrued in the workplace, or it can if you don't have the right managers in place. An alternative of that is somebody who's unable to make decisions in a management position. And when you're on a team that needs direction just to move forward and feel like you are making a difference, both in your organization like Global Giving, that then has a great impact on the world. If somebody is unable to make decisions on a regular basis, that doesn't make you feel productive and it doesn't make you feel good at work. And so my job as a manager, or at least what I see for myself, is making sure that everybody on my team really comes to work and enjoys what they do and feels respected and heard. Well, I can tell you, Courtney, because I have been on all sides. I've worked for people who were good managers. I've worked for people who were awful managers. I can tell you're a good one. (laughs) For sure. And I also want to let Java Junkies know that Courtney has a bunch of her favorite books and online courses and tools that we are going to put in show notes to help you in terms of being a better manager, helping you in the workplace, all kinds of fun stuff that she has kindly shared with me, and I will make sure to include that in show notes. Courtney, I want to flashback quickly to when you were at Rhodes College in Memphis. Mm -hmm. We've already talked about what you majored in. I would like to hear from you what extracurricular activities you engaged in that in hindsight, you now see you were actually working on honing, perfecting, trial and error, whatever different skills that you have since applied in the working world. Yeah. So I had a lot of extracurriculars during college. And I think most young people do because you're trying to get exposure and experience as much as possible. But I had an incredible experience working on a project called Crossroads to Freedom, where my college had received a pretty significant grant to build an online and digital archives of the history of Memphis during the civil rights era. But we wanted it to be told, the history itself to be told from the people that lived it. And when you think about the civil rights period, really, you know, 1968 to 1975, the reality was a lot of those people weren't around anymore. And so it was critical for us to really capture their stories as soon as possible. And to be honest, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And Recently, when I was at my 10-year reunion for college, I asked the dean who put that project together, why did you hire me for this? And her answer was pretty simple. She said, I don't know. During the interview, you told me you liked to be busy and you didn't like to be bored. I knew you'd be a good project manager then. And so I, I was on this team doing things I had never done before, working a very professional and expensive video camera. 
setting up sets, working with transcribers to actually transform what we had recorded on audio and on video into text that could be easily taken from our site and included in people's research. I had this assignment one summer where a member of the Ku Klux Klan in Tennessee had passed away And we purchased from his estate sale a collection of personal documents and scanned those and transcribed them for this digital archive. And it was telling really every single part of the story that happened in Memphis, everything from the I Am a Man march to if you were working as a cook in a kitchen at an elementary school to the postman that came to your house. You think of just regular people and people who were on the front lines of this movement, their stories are equally relevant and equally important to the history of that city. So I spent four years really kind of figuring out how to build a website. I That was not a competency of mine at all. Learning HTML code, putting pieces together, and then managing a project that now really serves as a resource for researchers moving forward. Wow, that is amazing. Courtney, I want to ask you a question that I try to ask all my time for coffee guests. And that is a time during your professional life when you really struggled because you had a challenging supervisor or maybe not the most collegial colleagues, or you just didn't like what you were doing. And most importantly, what your lessons learned were, how you got yourself out of that situation and into a better place? It was a long time ago, but I almost quit a job. And a friend of mine said, Courtney, you can't quit this job. Just go get a massage and read a book about bad bosses. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, what is he talking about? I did not get a massage, but I did end up reading this book called The No Asshole Rule, Building a Civilized Workplace and Surviving One That Isn't. And my challenge at the time was, despite being a successful fundraiser and account manager at a nonprofit, I had a manager that it wasn't that there were high expectations. It was that nothing was ever good enough. And that became a form of almost control and power in the workplace that extended beyond just my relationship uh, with this person. And it created what people refer to often as a toxic workplace. So the book that I ended up being recommended and reading actually gave me the language to describe what I was feeling inside. And that feeling was almost debilitating. You know, it was when you're in a really challenging workplace environment and you start to doubt what the context and circumstances are, you may start to think that it's your fault or that you haven't done everything that you possibly could to make it better. There are resources that will help give you just the language you need to talk about it to somebody else. And that's what I did. When one really bad circumstance happened, I had the language to describe it to somebody else. 
and found out that it was much more severe than I could have possibly imagined. And if I hadn't actually gone beyond myself and beyond my colleagues and outside of my organization to just navigate the challenge I was experiencing, I might not be at Global Giving today. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Courtney. So final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, back to Rhodes College and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would probably give myself two pieces of advice. And it has nothing to do with my college coursework or the fun that I had or how it directly relates to my career now. But I felt and realized that I was so unprepared for the financial realities of adulthood that going back, if my college offered a financial personal accounting course, I would have taken that just to really understand how to prepare for and build a financially stable future. It's not on the top of your mind in college. You're thinking about living month to month against that super small budget and how to fit everything in. And it compounds on a weekly basis as you leave college and become an adult. And the second piece I would have done something like joined our improv group or taken a theater course or something of the sort to be really prepared for public speaking. This is a rare interview for me. I don't do a lot of recorded conversations or as frequently as I should events, but being able to deliver your points in brevity and a succinct manner is really key for a senior career and development and a manager. So it seems kind of strange to say improv in theater, but when you think about those people who are cracking you up on stage on a random Saturday night in college, they spend a lot of time figuring out how to be entertaining on the fly, get a point across on the fly and getting really comfortable in front of people. And that's definitely something that I'm working on now and will continue to do, I assume, for the rest of my life. Well, just anecdotally between you and me, Courtney, you are so polished. You are so thoughtful. Doing these interviews is not easy. And I say that because it's one thing to talk about what you do, and it's another thing to offer examples, but to do it in a way where there's a beginning, middle, and end is challenging. And you made it sound easy. So whether or not you had your improv or your theater (laughs) courses at Rhodes College, you have made it all up in the ensuing years, and you are clearly a very articulate, well-spoken young woman. Well, thank you. So Courtney, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee or time for a nice British tea today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I so enjoyed getting to hear more about you and your career and what you do at Global Given. Thank you so much, Andrea. This was really fun and I appreciate going down the marine with you. 
Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.